The Fort McMurray fire created its own lightning storm in 2016, and that lightning storm triggered lightning strikes and fires 20 miles in advance of the fire. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. It may have happened, but it was the first time it was really documented. And you can imagine, you know, it's a crystal clear blue skies and you've got this fire burning 20, 25 miles away and suddenly it's the dragon in the forest and it's shooting out lightning 20 miles in advance. How do you deal with that as a firefighter? Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks, and today we continue our series of podcasts on urban resilience in partnership with our friends at Island Press. Island Press is the world's leading publisher of books on the environment, And if you want to learn more about Island Press or their Urban Resilience Project, go to www.islandpress.org backslash capital U-R-P. If you'd like to keep up with us here at Infinite Earth Radio, go to our website, infiniteearthradio.com, and subscribe to get weekly updates on the podcast and other sustainability and equity issues in the media. Our podcast today is especially timely given the recent devastating wildfires throughout the western U.S. and Canada especially the one most recently just north of San Francisco. Our guest today is Ed Struzik, the author of a new book from Island Press titled Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So Ed, I take it you're not a fire jumper and you haven't spent your whole life uh, working on wildfires. So tell us a little bit about your background and what motivated you to write a book about wildfire? Well, I I was originally a journalist, and uh, I covered the 2003 fires in Western North America. And that was pretty much the first year where firefighting went into triage mode. There were so many fires burning on the landscape then that they couldn't fight all the fires that were burning. And I covered a number of fires in the national parks in Glacier, Kootenai, Banff, and saw how close they came to really wiping out a vast area of forest there and how close they came to actually burning down the town of Banff and the town of Jasper. And there was one comment made by a fire manager for the National Park Service and told me that we really dodged a bullet, but this is a harbinger of things to come. And it turned out that he was right. And I just followed year after year after year. It seemed that the same thing was happening over and over again, but bigger, hotter, and more intensely. So yeah, so we we see in the media recently, you know, in recent years, a lot of coverage of the wildfires. And it seems like to a casual observer that they're they're increasing in number and intensity. And is that 
Is that accurate? Is that historically true? And and what are some of the causes of that? Why why is that occurring? Yeah, I mean, you know, some people would argue that we had bigger fires, you know, in pre-settlement times. But the reality is, since things started really warming up in the 1980s, we've had uh, fires, big fires, you know, those that are 1,000 acres or more occurring more often, mostly uh, in the American West, but even more rapidly in the East. And there's a number of reasons why this is happening because, you know, if you think about it for every, you know, two degree temperature increase, you need about 15% more precipitation to kind of restore the balance or maintain the balance of moisture in a forest. And then the hotter and drier it gets, the more vulnerable those forests become to disease and fire. And I think the one thing that has been overlooked is that as things heat up, you get more lightning strikes. And that's what we've been seeing. And the one that really blew my mind was the one in 2015, where a slow-moving thunderstorm went across Alaska, dropped almost no rain, but unleashed 61,000 bolts of lightning in five days, including 15,000 in one day, and caused more than 200 wildfires to burn. That really, I just thought, was astonishing. So is there some element to this, that, you know, from what I've read and what I've heard, is there some element where we have... For, you know, for a while, we got good at suppressing wildfires, and these wildfires are are natural. They're they're a part of the ecosystem in some of these areas. So, is there some element that's where we suppress this, and now we've encroached on those areas that were more wild with more building, more you know, we now have people living in places where they used to be more just natural forests. Is that is that? A piece of the puzzle? That's that's a big piece of the puzzle. Starting around 1910, when there was the fire called the Big Burn in Idaho, Montana, southern Alberta, it, it was one of the biggest fires in recorded human history in North America. And beginning around that time, the U.S. Forest Service decided to fight every fire and try to put it out by 10 a.m. the next day. And it became the mantra for both the U.S. Forest Service, the Canadian Park Service, and for a lot of wildfire agencies in North America. And so what happened was that, you know, when you get a fire, lightning lightning started fire, which be a natural way of rege- regenerating a forest, we'd go in there and we would suppress it as quickly as possible. So what we've inherited really is an old aging forest in the northern part, western part of the United States and throughout all of Canada. And these boreal forests, you know, the spruces, the larches, the the cedars, these are forests that are born to burn. So they were they're just ready to go up. We've created, you know, a lot of fuel on the ground that wouldn't have been there had we not suppressed fires for so long. Yeah, there's so many questions related to this. So, you know, one of the things I was surprised by reading in your book was, you know, we will talk in a minute about climate change and the and the impacts of these fires on climate change and vice versa. But I was surprised to the degree that the the health effects from these fires are not entirely localized. That there are from reading your book, and my sense was that there are health effects that occur some distance from where these fires are, and that that should be a concern for people. Yeah, it should be a big concern. The most one of the most notable examples of that was the 2002 fires in northern Quebec that resulted in a 50% spike in hospitalization among the elderly living in 81 counties and 11 states along the eastern seaboard. That really, I think, woke up a lot of public health officials and you know wondered, is this happening elsewhere? And it certainly is. There was the fires in Alaska resulted 
resulted in extremely high ozone levels in Houston, dangerously high levels of ozone in Houston. The uh, smoke from the Fort McMurray fire in 2016 resulted in unhealthy levels of ozone 2,500 miles away in many of the New England states. And so we know, you know, that these fire, the smoke from these fires can travel very long distances. And we also know that smoke from wildfires contain most of the chemical ingredients that you find in tobacco smoke. And it's just not a healthy situation. So besides these, these health effects, are these forest fires, how do they contribute to, to climate change and global warming? They unleash a lot of carbon into the atmosphere that would not otherwise get there, say, if we had a kind of more of a natural system. And where we're really seeing this happening is in the Alaska, Yukon, Northwest Territories and Russia areas where we're now seeing the tundra start to burn and the peat start to burn. And this stuff just smolders and it and it in you know the Alaska fire of 2015 unleashed as much soil carbon into the atmosphere as the entire arctic of Russia, Canada and the United States absorbs in a single year. So it's just essentially accelerating the warming that we are seeing taking place and it's also sending ash and particulates onto Greenland ice cap and the glaciers in Alaska and the sea ice in the arctic and that blackens those that ice and it just absorbs more of the sunlight and accelerates the rapid melting that we're seeing taking place. Let's unpack that for a minute because I want to understand this. You know, so my understanding was typically is that trees, burning trees, burning wood for, for fuel doesn't necessarily add to the carbon load overall because it's atmospheric carbon. Those We cut down trees, trees regrow, they resequester carbon. So my kind of basic and rudimentary understanding was that, you know, if the forest fires, let's say in California, on balance, are not necessarily contributing significantly to to climate change or global warming. But you, what you talked about a little bit was these kind of more northern fires, right? The ones that are burning the tundra or burning the peat and exposing carbon that might more have been sequestered already in the soils. So are they increasing in numbers? Is this a new phenomenon that these these more northern forest fires? Well, the boreal forest, that's the northern forest, you know, the white spruce, the cedars, the larches. That's the biggest forest in the world. It's even bigger than the Amazon rainforest throughout the world. And most of the boreal forest is very good They're the at, at collecting all of that carbon that's produced by decay, by burning, and it stores it in a frozen encasement in the permafrost. And what's happening now, and you know, what we call peat, what you put into your garden, you know, some of this peat can be three, four, five feet thick in the boreal forest. And when the forest burns and this peat burns, it releases literally hundreds, if not thousands of years of carbon that's stored in that peat and puts it into the atmosphere. So it's a much different situation than you have in California. I mean, there's 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 an importance, you know, that, that fires do return some nutrients back into a landscape, forest landscape. But the kind of runaway fires we're seeing in Alaska, the Northwest Territories, Alberta, you know, the northern part of the United States, they're unleashing far more carbon than we would have normally seen, say, in the 1970s and 1960s. See, you mentioned earlier that we we got really good at, you know, fighting fires and we're really aggressive and we su- suppressed and a lot of naturally occurring fires. So my sense is now that, you know, we're not as good at fighting these fires and they become a much bigger challenge. From your research, you know, what 
what would be the key to managing these these fires in the future? Is there a, a new strategy that we need in relation to addressing these these problems? Yeah, you're. I mean, you're right in the first place. It's become increasingly clear that we can't afford to fight all fires anymore. There's just not enough firefighters and water bombers, helicopters, and the heavy equipment to to go around. And triaging is becoming the order of the day. But there are things that you know we can do. And one is what a lot of national parks in the U.S. and Canada are doing is is conducting controlled burns to help regenerate forests and produce younger forests that are more resilient to fire. The problem with that is that it's increasingly hard to do because in outside of the national parks, because we've populated these areas with people. You know, in the United States now, there are 46 million single family homes and 120 million people living and working in and around the country's forests. And that pace of development continues and it's most pronounced in the American West. So, you know, having a controlled or prescribed burn in, in these areas becomes very risky. And and the bottom line is, is people don't like smoke. They don't want to deal with it. And so politicians don't want to deal with it. And we're kind of, you know, in this catch-22 is that we know that we should burn, but we can't burn. So, so what are we going to do? I think that, you know, incrementally, we can, you know, we can do what Florida is doing is that we can have a laws passed, which allows the state to burn. And people can't sue the state if they do that. I think that's one way of doing it. There may be a little bit of risk involved in some places, but I think the rewards outweigh the risks in that place. I think the other thing that's really important is that we've got to make ourselves more resilient to wildfires. They're not going to go away. There's no no kind of policy decision that we can make right now that's going to solve the problem in the next 10, 20, or 30 years. It's just that warming is going to continue irrespective of what we do with, with uh, prescribed burns and with uh, climate change. So I think that cities have got to be much more cognizant of the fact that they can have building codes in place, which makes forested communities, for example, you know, a building code which prohibits people from building houses with cedar shake shingles on their roof or planting exotic trees such as eucalyptus, which are highly combustible, advising people not to, you know, have ornamental cedars next to their house or wood fences next to their house, establishing um, uh, corridors around small rural communities that are heavily forested so that if there is a fire, firefighters can anchor themselves between the community and the fire. We're just not seeing that right now. We've got this kind of scattershot approach allowing anybody to live anywhere in the forest. It's, you know, theoretically, it's a very wonderful thing you know, for people to be able to get away from, you know, crowded urban environments like New York City or Los Angeles. But out there, trying to protect everybody in a fire becomes extremely complicated, very expensive and virtually impossible. You mentioned that we're just we're just not going to be able to afford to fight every fire. Do you have any data or statistics on, you know, what what these wildfires are are costing, or is there any way to kind of calculate that? It seems like it's a pretty complicated complicated question. There's fighting the fires, but then there's the damage and whatever. 
Well, I think the best way to compare it in the United States is the U.S. Forest Service has said that I think it's by 2025, their entire budget will be devoted to fighting fires. And that will take money away from conservation programs, forest conservation programs, you know, that allow for the rehabilitation of wildlife, endangered species and and you know clearing trails and whatnot that's one example that's that that that's just not sustainable in the long run just north of the border canada in the last few two years has spent more than a billion dollars fighting fires and they've never spent that kind of money that's about four times what they spent maybe 10 15 years ago so the cost of these of fighting these fires is just skyrocketing and at some point unless you know Congress starts giving them, a, you know, the U.S. Forest Service and the National Park Service a, a lot more money to fight fires, something's got to give. So we've got to come up with new strategies. So in, in the course of researching for your book, which is a, which is a great read, I, I recommend that everybody go out and buy the book or go to Island Press's website and buy the book. But is there anything in particular that what, what surprised you the most about the mega fires or alarmed you the most about what's going on with these mega fires? I guess the one that really blew me away, and it's more awe and wonder than than anything else, was a fire that burned out of control in northern Canada in 1950. It was called the Chinchaga Fire, and it resulted in this huge plume of smoke that I think was 160 miles wide, traveling all the way to New York City, and it resulted in baseball stadiums being forced to turn their lights on during the day. There was a run, the smoke got all the way to Denmark. It resulted in a a run on the banks because people thought it was the end of the world. Other people, some people thought an atomic bomb had exploded. Utilities were shut down because uh, people were drawing far too much power to light themselves up during the day. It created just this enormous problem right across, you know, the Atlantic. And I think that that kind of fire, that huge mega fire is still a possibility. In fact, we had one in 2015 in Alaska, came very close to being as big as that and would have been as close as being big, big as that had it not, the rains not come in August that year. But I think we're going to have another event like that was just going to shock people. And it's just now we've met, we've been dodging bullets with the exception, say, of, of California, which has just been getting hit year after year after year. You, you did mention earlier that there's a lot more wildfires in the east also. Was that accurate? Or did I hear you right that there, the number of wildfires is not just increasing in the western part of the United States, but also in the eastern part of the United States? The east has been spared to some extent because the east has been going through a wet period. And for a number of reasons that are associated with the jet stream, but, you know, the east can get dry. And some of the biggest fires that we've seen in the past have occurred in Maine, in the Pinelands of New Jersey. In fact, probably the fire that up until a few years ago was the one of the most costly wildfires in U.S. history occurred in the Pinelands, I think around 1963. So, it's going to happen. At some point, there's going to be a shift. And when that happens, we don't know. But I think we've all kind of become complacent that it's not going to happen in our backyard, but it will at some point. How about on a global scale? 
Is there an increasing wildfire occurrence in other on other continents? Yeah, the, the the boreal, which is the biggest forest in the world, you know, that the northern United States, all of Canada, all, you know, most of northern Russia and Scandinavia, this is the biggest forest in the world. And it is burning bigger, hotter, faster than it ever has before. And in fact, now I think uh, Russia is the amount of forest burned in Russia tops the forest fires that burn in the world. I think Canada is somewhere third and the United States is somewhere fourth. They're they're all in the top four now. I mean, Canada, the United States and Russia are burning more trees than anywhere else in the world outside of the Amazon. So what would you hope that readers take away from your book? What what's your message about what we need to do going forward in order to, you know, prepare ourselves and to address this issue? Is are you hopeful that there's a way to address this issue or just, are we just in for a long period of increased wildfires and that will continue to rage out of control? I think there's a number of things that can be done. I mean, you know, the obvious one is that we've really got to get a hold of the amount of greenhouse gas that we put in the atmosphere. That's not going to solve the problem now. But I think that we 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 can, you know, come up with better building codes. We can maybe start restricting where people settle in forest environments now. Reconsider the fact that, you know, uh, should we allow people to live wherever they want and uh, at the risk of them, you know, being in the line of fire? We should have code red alerts like they do in, in Australia. Something in place similar to what we have, you know, in a, with a tornado alert in the Midwest is that if a fire comes anywhere near a community or a city, put everybody on alert. Tell them, here's where you go, here's which road you take, and, you know, maybe evacuate children in schools first and then hospitals and stage it so that it's an orderly evacuation, not like the kind that we're seeing in California where people are running all over the place. You know, the fire just moves so fast and burns so hot that people really had no, didn't know where to go. I think that we have to invest more in wildfire science. Both the U.S. Forest Service and the Canadian Forest Service have been hit hard, very hard over the years by budget cuts. And the status quo, the business as usual model is not going to be successful uh, because we're getting some fires that are doing some really bizarre things. Like the Fort McMurray fire created its own lightning storm in 2016, and that lightning storm triggered lightning strikes and fires 20 miles in advance of the fire. Nobody had ever seen anything like that before. It may have happened, but it was the first time it was really documented. And you can imagine, you know, it's a crystal clear blue skies and you've got this fire burning 20, 25 miles away. And suddenly it's the dragon in the forest and it's shooting out lightning 20 miles in advance. How do you deal with that as a firefighter and an emergency response official? These are questions that we have to start asking. We also have to, I think, consider, you know, what do you do with the elderly, people with respiratory problems who are subjected to the kind of smoke that California and Washington, the in fact, the entire West Coast uh, suffered through this year. You know, do we create community shelters where people can go and breathe easily? The list of things that we can do is endless. It's just that we're not doing anything about it at all. And is that, you know, so California has been hit hard. California tends to be one of the more progressive states in terms of trying to get in front of these things. Do you see any evidence that the state of California is 
is taking the kind of steps necessary to, to get ahead of this? Yeah, I think, the, I think California is, and in some ways they're further ahead, but in the same ways they're more handicapped than any, than any other jurisdiction because they have so many people who live in forested landscapes and they have a climate which, you know, is coming to the rest of North America. It, it's just more pronounced there. So, they're really what's happening in California is a harbinger for what's going to happen in the future. And we're already seeing it. You know, in 2015, I think that Washington and Oregon accounted for some of the biggest fires that uh, burned in the United States. That's normally very soggy part of the world. People were kind of astonished, you know, that Mount Rainier was burning, you know, when normally it's shrouded in fog and, uh, and, and rain. This is going to occur more often. And we're just seeing these the this weird weather patterns all across north america uh that you know are can be directly attributed to climate change and it's really going to exacerbate the wildfire situation ed unfortunately we're running out of time any uh, last words of wisdom for our listeners regarding what they should be doing and what action they can be taking? Well, I think, you know, that probably those people who live in in a forested environment should just look at their own property and say, you know, what would you do if a fire came through? Can your house stand up to 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 a fire? You know, considering the fact that embers can can be transported five miles in advance of a fire. Have you got a cedar, cedar shake shingle roof? Have you got ornamental or exotic trees that are highly combustible on your property? Where would would you go if there was a fire? Have you perhaps got a little safe haven as people do in a tornado situation? I think people got to ask themselves a lot of questions. And I think they also has to ask, ask politicians questions because the policymakers just are not responding to this. You know, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and they don't want to deal with it because it requires a lot of new ideas, new strategies, and politicians are very, very slow to act on this kind of uh, new phenomenon. And unfortunately, climate change is, a climate exa- uh, you know, is an example. Politicians either deny that it's happening or if they accept that it's happening, don't really want to do anything about it. So I think, you know, maybe we've got to start voting that way. Ed, thank you so much. Your book was great. Hope folks go to islandpress.org and, and buy it. Firestorm, How Wildfire Will Shape Our Future. Ed, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for the book. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.